G'day, humans. Welcome to the final episode of 2021. Uh, we did it. We're here. Uh, this year was a stinker, and we got through it. And we got through it with a lot of interesting conversations. 42 episodes this year. I'm proud of us. I was going to say I'm proud of myself, but it's really you who have been able to sustain the juggernaut that is Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps, and I thank you for it. Uh, it's been There have been ups and downs, I'll tell you what, especially in Australia especially in the parts of Australia that were in lockdown, Sydney and Melbourne in particular during Delta. That was a long time between drinks, ladies and gents. And uh, we got through it and hopefully, hopefully we're out the other side. Now, this is an Ask Me Anything episode, so I'll get to COVID and I'll get to Australia in a moment. I'm not going to dwell on that. I will, if you are a, a confused American, not quite sure what to think about what's going on in Australia, I will address that next year. And when karma heads prevail, we can all sit back and have a cup of tea and figure out what went wrong in Australia and what went right. I will just note that uh, some people on Twitter seem to believe that, uh, you know, oh, if you actually look at the numbers, then Australia didn't do that much better than America. No, I looked at the numbers again today on a per capita and other people say well australia's smaller so of course they have fewer covid deaths on a per capita basis australia has 96 percent fewer covid deaths than the united states now that doesn't mean that you should justify infringing people's human rights but it does mean that there is that side of the ledger to compare when you're comparing whether or not aggressive contact tracing and mandatory isolation for close contacts of infectious people should be countenanced anyway that's the subject for another day. The subject for today is your questions, both audio and written, which I'm looking forward immensely to opining on. Uh, have a wonderful Christmas, a fabulous new year. We will have lots more uncomfortable conversations in the new year. So far, all of the conversations I've had have been fun. They've been enriching. They've been occasionally awkward. They've been stimulating and hopefully always just a little uncomfortable. Let's dive right into this. Uh, lots of great questions uh, from uh, from you guys. Uh, the first one comes from Zach Gross in Melbourne. Hi, Josh. My name's Zach, and I'm a lecturer at a university campus in Australia. And from my personal experience and from what I've seen in the media, cancel culture pretty much doesn't exist in Australia, at least how you usually define it and, and have talked about it on your podcast. And I was wondering if... First of all, you agreed with this observation of mine uh, that you know it seems to be confined mainly to university campuses in the US and UK, uh, and Australia uh, seems to be excluded from this experience. Uh, and secondly, if you have an explanation for why this is the case. Thanks, Zach. Uh, I think I do agree with you that cancel culture from... Cancel culture in the way that we understand it in terms of like a, a widespread deplatforming of speakers at universities who have, you know, politically incorrect ideas or ideas that don't conform to a very woke agenda does not seem to be the same phenomenon in Australia as it is elsewhere. Um, that being said, well, I should add, there is a certain form of cancel culture in Australia where people, the only people who really have gotten cancelled in Australia are people on the left who have accidentally made jokes that outraged like the conservative Murdoch tabloids and the various radio hacks who feed on that kind of rhetoric. I won't go into specifics, but there are well-known cases of people making jokes about Anzac Day on Twitter, which is our sort of remembrance day, uh, and then being finding it impossible to essentially, I mean, just suffering such a, to a torrent and barrage of online abuse that they, you know, in one case even had to leave the country. Um, but I don't think that that means that the sort of currents that are that are causing cancel culture in America aren't functioning here in terms of the chilling of what you can say. There's definitely um, an inability to talk bluntly about important issues here. So I think the uh, the the specter of cancel culture looms over the the country. There are small examples of like little things that get people upset. Like Australia's most popular brand of cheese, which was a national icon, was called Coon Cheese, and they changed their name. There was a beer called Colonial Beer, and they changed their name because you wouldn't want to be associated with colonialism. Uh, there are conversations about the appropriateness of statues of Captain Cook and Governor Macquarie in the same way that there are of founding fathers in the United States. 
and of course, we do receive a lot of American cultural content. So, you know, when Netflix or whichever streaming app it was that removed one episode of Faulty Towers because it was racist the classic British sitcom, that, of course, affects us here when they remove Chris Lilly's show where he was in blackface playing a uh, like a, a Tongan kid. They remove that as well. Well, that was actually an Australian-initiated cancellation. And, of course, we get, you know, when I'm logged in as my kids on, uh, uh, on whichever streaming app it is that has The Jungle Book and The Jungle Book 2, I, I search for Jungle Book, it doesn't come up. It doesn't come up because it's considered to be mature content because it deals in like colonialism and racist tropes. So I have to log out, log back in as myself. When we watch things that contain stereotypes of people on streaming apps like Disney+, Plus, they show this long, boring, finger-wagging admonition before the movie starts about the, there are, this contains stereotypes of people and they were wrong then and they, they are wrong now. This very kind of sanctimonious attitude that the perspective that we have on things right now is, is eternal and eternally good and can be retroactively fitted and superimposed onto everybody who ever lived in the past as if people in the future wouldn't be able to do exactly the same thing to us using the standards of the future. So there is still a bit of that. But I take I do agree with you broadly, Zach, that we don't have the fury of the American culture wars. And I've thought about that a lot, but I, I think it's just that Americans are just crazier in general. No offense, Americans, but... You take things very seriously, um, and that's sometimes a great thing because the civil rights movement in the 1960s probably wouldn't have happened the way that it did if Americans didn't get carried away and whole cities weren't burning and the president was shot and the, I mean, at the beginning of the decade and then Martin Luther King was shot and then the president's brother who was running for president was shot. I mean, like things are, things just seem to be higher stakes in America. And I think that probably has something to do with ideological capture of certain communities. Maybe it has something to do with inequality. Certainly the current moment, I think, in America has something to, has a lot to do with inequality. Australians are more egalitarian, live in more similar ways to each other. They're not ethnically more homogenous than Americans are. Australia, if anything, is more multicultural as a rule. We, are, we certainly have a higher proportion of the population who are migrants than America does. So we are at least as much of a melting pot. So it's not that we're all like just white Swedes or something. But economically speaking, it's easier to get ahead if you're poor or working class here. Everyone feels like they're roughly in the same boat. So I don't, there aren't just decades of inherited generational antipathy and a sense of not being able to get ahead as much here. That's not to deny the inequality that exists, but as much. I think Aussies are just by our nature raised to be not very faddish. We don't hop on board. We don't like labels. We don't really like we do our team work in sports. Like we're very tribal when it comes to superficial things. But yeah, I don't think that we jump on board uh, ideological bandwagons quite as easily as the extremes of the American political spectrum do. We haven't had the same entrenched far-right parties that many European countries have had. Uh, we never had a major communist party here. We're certainly less geographically stratified than the United States. Like, we just don't have the difference between Alabama and Oregon that America does. And, I mean, the elephant in the room is we didn't have slavery. Uh, you know, Australia has had to reconcile itself to the tragedy of what, um, you know, the original white settlers did to First Nations Australians, to Indigenous people who were here. And I think Australia has come an enormously long way in the past 20 years. It's a totally different conversation than it was when I left. I mean, now you you can't go to a public event without, or even hold a meeting without there being an acknowledgement of country, an acknowledgement of the the traditional owners of the land and, and so on. That's now the norm here. Um, but the reality is that Indigenous Australians are a much, much, much smaller proportion of the population than uh, than black Americans are. So, you know, you're talking about less than 2% of the population. In the States, it's, what, nudging 20%, somewhere between 15 to 20%. And the historical wrongs of slavery, I think, are still carried and born right through Jim Crow and then into the explosions of the 1960s and are somewhat entrenched by the higher inequality in America. So I know that I'm sort of rambling and throwing a lot into the pot, but that's those are some of the components that I think help to make Australians 
just less extreme than Americans, regardless of what it is that you're talking about, um, uh, less susceptible to being swept up by ideology. And I wonder if that has something to do with our, our gentler version of cancel culture than you see in the States. Uh, question number two is a written question from uh, Paul Livingston in Sydney. He writes, well, my question is, why are the left afraid to laugh? Where's the next generation of fearless humorists hiding? Why are Pauline Hanson's One Nation animated campaign ads the sharpest, funniest satire seen in years? Alternative comedy of the 80s and 90s reveled in sending up political correctness. These days, aisles are no longer rolled in. Sides remain unsplit, barely a snigger. I'm not sure I agree with that, Paul. I mean, the left does laugh. I just think they laugh at very predictable things that you probably don't find funny. Like, people were laughing at Hannah Gadsby's special. It's just that, as Dave Chappelle says, it wasn't funny. They were just sort of pretending to have a good time because they thought it was very clever. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, during the during the heyday of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, there was a... It was, sort of quite common to hear people say, like, why don't conservatives have a sense of humour? Why isn't there a conservative satirical show? And it's true that the right, it's harder to do good satire from the right. And I've always assumed that that's because right-wing beliefs are somewhat more obedient. I know that sounds funny in this climate where the the right has become libertarian, I think, because of COVID. Uh, But you know, conservatives believe in hierarchy and authority. They don't believe in thumbing your nose at the uh, at, at the elites. They believe in, like, sort of military rules. They like the police. They like order. And I think the left has been freer at, you know, taking a shit on the face of the, <laughs> of the queen and throwing shit at the wall, so to speak, um, which has enabled the left to be, to have a much better sense of humor traditionally, I think maybe what's happening now is that the 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 sort of regressive left, as you might call it, the highly politically correct left, I mean, that strain has always been dour. You know, Marxists weren't funny either. Uh, they were as they were as dour as as, as Senator Joe McCarthy. Like people who, who take things very, very seriously and who think things are very, very important and that things oughtn't be joked about can be on the left or the right. It's just that at the moment, the left has become quite censorious and smug and self-satisfied and seems to have no doubt that it's on the right side of history and that its its farts don't stink. And that's probably feeding into it. I think it's just a cultural moment, Paul. The left will become funny again. Let's have another audio question. Uh, this one's from Shane. Hi, Josh. My name is Shane, and I'm a lecturer in philosophy at Gonzaga University. And my question for you is, how did you get so smart? Um... I understand you basically to be a journalist, and um, while I respect that profession and think there's lots of smart journalists, I notice you talk to a lot of intellectuals, philosophers, really smart people, and you seem able to keep up and hold your own, and you're really well-informed, and I just really respect and admire your mind a lot, and I'm wondering what your intellectual background is, Uh, do you just read a lot, and have a lot of different interests or what? So I'm sort of curious about your intellectual background, your your current diet of information and that sort of thing. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Shane. That's a very sweet question. Uh, uh, perhaps undeserved. Um, I mean, you, you got to remember, I spend all day talking to interesting people and smart people and picking their brains about things. So like my job is also a form of education, for my, of self-education for myself and wrestling things through. Um I am reminded of the analogy about the fox and the hedgehog. I don't know if you've heard of that. Like a fox, a fox like scurries around and knows many things and is wily, but a hedgehog knows one big thing. Uh, And I'm a bit of a fox, uh, by which I mean I've just never really had an interest in getting really, really, really knowledgeable about one area. Unless it's like a hobby, like, you know, frequent flyer programs or something like that, which I treat as a sort of a form of Sudoku or something or a crossword, like figuring out the best way of hacking them. But in terms of actual things that are going on in the world, I've just always been very interested in things. I did read a lot as a kid. I think that helped. But I don't spend a huge amount of time reading. To be honest, if you want to know what my media diet is... Uh, I have a subscription to Audem, A-U-D-M, which is an app that reads to you, actual people reading. It's not an AI voice reading like this. It's actual people reading to you 
some of the best articles from some of the best publications. They've got to deal with like the New Yorker and the New York Times and a lot of these big long form publications. So sometimes I'll just, I mean, when a new edition of the New Yorker comes out, they don't read the whole magazine, but they'll pick maybe four or five articles from it. And those New Yorker pieces are long. They're like might be maybe an hour, an hour and a half for the for the narrator to read. And I consume a lot of that. There's another app called Curio, which is uh, which is shorter form articles from uh, more newsy publications like the Financial Times. But the reason I love that is uh, is they they include the Economist as one of their partners. So, I mean, I honestly think that if you listen to highlight articles from The Economist and The New Yorker each week, let alone if you read The Economist and The New Yorker each week, you get such an enormous wide range of different things. You, you, they really are extremely broad in their interests. And sometimes you'll read just a totally random, long piece about like the mission to save the world's seeds for biodiversity by burying them under the ice flows in Scandinavia or something, like something totally different than what the conversation in the conventional media is. So that's where I get a lot of that. I don't read a lot of sort of daily news unless I have to for my job. I think we've gotten to a point at which the news is coming at us too fast and we can't comprehend it all and it's not particularly useful. My general philosophy is if something isn't in the weekend New York Times the Economist or the New Yorker, then it's not important enough to worry about. So don't spend a lot of time like I don't spend a lot of time reading the daily newspapers. Um, a weekly roundup is is good enough. Um, I spent my teenage years having a huge epiphany by devouring like science books. I, I didn't realize how much I loved it, but I guess when I was in my mid-teens, I discovered Richard Dawkins and then Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman. And some of their books are just like, they blew my mind about how interesting, how much more interesting the world is than the things that most of us spend most of our time talking about. So if you have young people in your life, I would definitely encourage buying them books like that. And in terms of podcasts, um, the Slate Political Gab Fest is great for a wrap of American politics. Obviously, Sam Harris's podcast I enjoy. Uh, And yeah, I think I, I don't think I have, I mean... Look, if I'm to whatever extent I'm intelligent, it, that is just a function of genetics. I think I don't think there's a, I don't think there's anything that anyone can do about that. But in terms of being like well read and consuming and being interested, really, I think being curious is the most key element. And anyone can be curious, and then just finding ways of pulling, of tugging on the little threads and seeing where they lead. That's why I am a journalist. I mean, I, I also I share your disdain for journalism as a as a profession. I mean, I tend not I tend to try not to call myself a journalist. I might say I'm a broadcaster or I'm a commentator or I'm a creator or something like that because it's just such I mean, the media, the news media and journalism is just such a failed uh institution at the moment. I just was, would so not want to be associated with some entertainment reporter who's just reporting on you know, some gossip about what some celebrity is, who some celebrity is fucking. It's not interesting to me. Um, so I take your point. I kind of, and, and, you know, someday I'll write a book and I'll actually be able to join the ranks of those people who have something to go on other people's shows to talk about. Stay tuned. Uh, let's go to uh, another audio question from Oscar. Hello, Josh. This is Oscar calling from Copenhagen, Denmark. First of all, thank you for your podcast. I really enjoy it, every episode of it. I've been hanging in there for three years listening to uh, a lot of your stuff, so thank you for that. Also, just a quick comment. I've heard you once in, in a podcast, I think it was with Sam Harris, that you mentioned that the food in Denmark is horrible and all we eat is mayonnaise. And that is, of course, not true. I just want you to rem- want to remind you that we actually have the two best restaurants in the world in Copenhagen. And that puts us up there with uh, Japan and Switzerland as the country with most Michelin stars per capita. So just a reminder there. Um, for my question, as a gay person who have been living both in New York and Sydney, have you experienced any cultural differences and differences in attitude between the two cities? And also, have you experienced uh, a difference in attitude towards being gay since you were young and today in your contemporary life? Thank you very much. Thanks, Oscar. Uh, I should say, (laughs) 
He's caught me out, hasn't he? He's got he's uh, I didn't you know, you don't you don't think about people. People are going to be listening in these places that I talk about. I have to be more tactful. It is the case, uh, Oscar, that Denmark and Copenhagen are one of my favorite countries in the entire world. In fact, just today, uh, I was saying a friend of mine in who lives in Italy, who's an English guy uh, who spent most of his life in Germany and Greece, asked me if you could have one European country that would basically rule all of Europe, its culture, its cuisine, its politics, its taxes, its everything, what would that country be? And we were going back and forth and back and forth about this. And I finally settled on, it's got to be, I would say Denmark. Second, A close second place would be the Netherlands. Uh, because Southern European countries have wonderful lifestyles, but are total basket cases. Northern European countries, uh, you know, the big ones, Germany, and uh, then add to that the Nordic countries. Uh, you know, they they can be a little bit cultureless and overpriced and high taxi and just uh, you know not enough joie de vivre and maybe not enough tolerance. And Denmark really came out ahead. I lived in Copenhagen for a semester, went to Copenhagen Business School, studied globalization there, absolutely loved it. However, I'm not sure that the number of Michelin-starred restaurants per capita, when you're talking about two restaurants in a small country, is necessarily indicative of how the average person actually eats. I was thinking more about just the fast food on the streets and more about it just being peculiar to a person who isn't used to putting mayonnaise on a lot of things. There is a lot of mayonnaise, you've got to admit. There's a lot of mayonnaise. It was unusual to me to get a hot dog and to stick to see the, the Frankfurt being stuffed into a hollowed-out uh, uh, bread roll into which mayonnaise had previously been squirted such that it oozed up out the sides of the bread roll all over the Frankfurt and that was the hot dog. That's not a bad thing. That's fine. I'm sure it's quite delicious. It's just if you had to choose, if you were traveling around the south of France or Sicily and you stopped into a little taverna, I just do think that the general standard of food would be better than Nordic cuisine. But hey, everyone loves different things. That's totally fine. I love Denmark in so many different ways. And you're right. The high-end cuisine in uh, in Copenhagen is unbelievable. The difference between New York and Sydney in terms of gay rights, it's interesting. It's It was much more diverse and uh, accepting in New York, but not because New Yorkers are necessarily nicer about it. I think Aussies' hearts are in the right place. It just seems a bit newer here for people to be, for same-sex couples to be married and have kids and stuff. It's almost like, it's almost like New York is where all 300 and whatever million Americans have been going, along with San Francisco, for a long time to express themselves. So even before there was any legal marriage or, like, people were just adopting. They were figuring out ways of doing it. They were doing surrogacy on the side. Like, it's just it's just been a thing in certain circles in New York. And New York is just such an eclectic place anyway. It's just such a weird hodgepodge. You're, you, you feel much more liberated about being weird in New York than you do in Sydney, I think. Um, and the other thing about Sydney's gay population is Sydney has prided itself for decades on being one of the gayest cities in the world. I mean, when I grew up, the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras was and continues to be the biggest gay festival in the world. Uh, and it was, you know, Sydney was proud. Sydney was proud of its reputation as being a glittering, shimmering gay harbour city full of parties and sodomy. Uh, but I felt that that was very... I mean, one reason why I didn't really feel comfortable calling myself gay until I was in my 20s was not because I was ashamed of it or because I thought I, because I was in the closet in any way. It's because I really didn't think that my brand of uh, sexuality and sexual attraction put me into the same category as the people who were wearing leather arseless chaps riding on a giant inflatable penis through the city of Sydney. Like, that's what I thought gay was. And the gay community, to some extent, was responsible for that almost as much as the, the the sort of straight bigots were at creating an image in a young 14-year-old boy's mind when I was that age that uh, there were two types of human being. There were straight people and gay people, and gay people had a certain fashion, a certain style, a certain way of walking, a certain way of talking, a certain politics. I clearly wasn't any of that, 
So I just assumed that finding charming people charming and charismatic people charismatic and attractive people attractive was just something that everybody probably felt to differing degrees and that I was particularly curious and open-minded to be interested in guys as well as girls. Um, that was the bottom line. It wasn't until I fell in love with a guy when I was in my mm, early 20s, late teens maybe, that I realized, oh, this might be something different and maybe maybe the category of gay is capacious enough to include me after all. Whereas I think that question might not have come up if I'd been a really urbane New York kid. I think maybe it would have just been more fluid. Times have changed, to come to the second part of your question. Times have changed since since I grew up. Yeah, I think today, I mean, I would love to see a future, and I think it's beginning to happen, in which the whole category of gay and straight just seems passe. And, you know, it's for a 15-year-old rugby star, at high school to start dating another guy would just be like, well, okay, that's one thing. And then if he date, starts dating a girl again, for it not to be like, but wait a second, is he? Isn't he? What is he? Who is he? What's the label? Like, it would be much better if it was just like, well, okay, that's that's just what he's doing. And that's uh, no big deal. So that's what I, that was, that's my sort of lodestar. And in fact, if you want to hear more about me opining about this, I actually speak for a whole hour about my coming out story and what I think about labels and gayness with my husband, with whom I disagree a lot about this, who also has a podcast, which is called Come Out Wherever You Are. It's interviews with um, people about their coming out stories. And I was the last guest on season one of that. So search for Come Out Wherever You Are. Sean Zepps is the uh, is the presenter. If you want more information about about my story, uh, yeah. So times have changed. Things would probably be different if I was growing up today. But uh, I was lucky. I mean, I grew up in a progressive uh, city in a progressive family. So pretty much as soon as I knew something was up, it only took a couple of years for me to be able to come out about it. And I also had the benefit of having a person who I was in love with to be able to talk about it. So it didn't have to be an abstract thing of like, I'm gay. I was able to just be like, well, I almost made out with this guy and we have feelings for each other. So I'm just letting you know that that's the thing that I'm grappling with. And that's that would seem to be an easy way of kind of landing the conversation. I do hope Sydney becomes as diverse and as crazy as New York City, but I find that hard to believe. Uh, next question from Delilah Garrett on Twitter. What do you think about the UFO UAP issue? UAP being unidentified aerial phenomena. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, that's, uh, it's a biggie. Clearly something is there. Something's unidentified. There are unidentified things in the sky with sufficient regularity that there's a phenomenon. I don't know if that means that there are actual objects flying around. Um, I think... It's got to be almost certain that there are alien civilizations out there. For more on that, you can listen to my episode with Tim Urban, uh, which was the 38th episode of uh, 2021. I'm not sure what number it was listed as, but it's fantastic. One of my favorite episodes ever. He goes into the question of why we're not seeing more uh, extraterrestrial life, more evidence of alien civilizations, among other mind-expanding things that he talks about. If you haven't listened to that, go right now and like mark that as the next podcast that you should listen to. So I suspect there are other alien civilizations out there. I doubt that they've come here. Uh, the, the distances are too vast and they're obviously far enough away that we haven't seen any evidence of them. So that would be unlikely. It's certainly not the most simple or parsimonious explanation for seeing things in the sky or for tales of alien abduction. It is interesting that over the past decade or two, as uh, phone cameras have become ubiquitous, nobody has caught images of uh, unidentified flying objects uh, like it used to in the 70s it was easier to say oh well you know there was a shiny light in the sky you know the farm the farmer would come out and be like, oh, they came down and they took me and they stuck something up my butt uh there would that seemed to be the sort of thing that would happen every six months or so well where are the, where are the images of this happening now that we've all got cameras on us so i don't think there's much going on there i don't believe tales of alien abduction the simplest explanation for what the military are seeing, I think, would have to be either other military uh, stuff that is top secret. It could be that. Or it could be just artifacts. You know, it, there, are, there are common artifacts of sight that people are, are reflections of light that are operating in certain ways. And that once you seed the idea of such a thing, 
uh, you're more likely to see it. I, all of this is just a way of saying I, I have no idea, and anyone who claims to uh, is lying. Let's take an audio question from Tess. Hey, Josh. Um, I hear you talk a lot about left and right, um, politically or ideologically or whatever. And I wanted to ask what you thought about a quote that my dad often uses. Um, it was something that his dad used to say to him when he was a pretty hardcore lefty in his 20s. And that is, if you're not liberal in your 20s, then you're heartless. And if you are not conservative by the time you're in your 40s, then you've got no head. Um, yeah, so just wanted to know what your take on that was. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Tess. Uh, yes, that's a funny classic old saying. I mean, there's a certain amount of truth to it, isn't there? Like the idealism of youth usually expresses itself in terms of believing in highly impractical but humanitarian, humanistic uh, revolutions and things. The young people tend to be disdainful of things that came before them and perhaps underappreciative of the legacy of civilization that has sort of permitted them to come into existence. Everything is new for them, so they don't need to have respect for the old. It's all about forging forward. So bold ideas and audacious concepts and revolutions sound like a great idea. If you're young and if you're compassionate, then of course you want everyone in the world to be equal. And then as you get older, it's often the trajectory that, you know, the cynical take of why people get more conservative is they get more selfish because they, they earn more and they want to cling to their property more. They want to cling to their money and they become more cold hearted. I don't think that's the right explanation. I think the, the explanation that's sort of pointed at in that, in that saying is that people become more appreciative of what has come before them, more humble in their belief in their own ability to change the world, more suspicious of revolutionaries and radical and radicalism, more invested in the status quo in ways that might be bad and corrupt and sort of self-serving, but in ways that equally might be genuinely appreciative of all the incredible institutions that have been established by their forebears to, to create the world that we live in today. Um, and obviously, maybe the fire of, uh, of of passionate change dwindles and you become more conservative. It doesn't always happen that way. It didn't happen that way for me. When I was in my teens, someone gave me uh, a copy of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And uh, and I loved PJ O'Rourke, uh, the conservative humorist, uh, in, in the American conservative humorist. And so I was pretty right way. I was pretty libertarian when I was in my teens. And then I gradually realized that the trade-offs of social democracy were not that bad. Like, it's not true that every time you give the government the power to take a bit of money from wealthy people and, you know, give healthcare to poor people, that that will lead inexorably to a slide into authoritarianism or communism. That's just not the way it works. There are lots of stable social democratic countries. And frankly, the standard of living there on the whole is better than in the more right-wing, right-wing, like libertarian countries. Uh, I would rather, if I was going to be dropped into any country in the world and I was going to have the the, the, the Rawlsian blindfold on, meaning that I wouldn't know where, you know, who I was going to be or what money I was ha- would have or what race I would be or anything, and I was just going to be plonked down randomly, I'd rather be I'd rather be plonked down into a country with a, a strong social safety net like Germany or Australia or Canada than I than into the United States, for example. And that's not because the United States is too left wing. Um, so I, yeah, it can go either way, but I mean, I sort of like, there's another saying, which I like a bit more, which is a conservative is a progressive who's been robbed and a libertarian is a conservative who's been arrested. That'll do. Let's take another audio question. This one's from Peter Lamb. G'day, Josh, Peter here. Just curious, what is the most common uncomfortable conversation that you tend to have in your life and do you like having this uncomfortable conversation or do you prefer that it would just die a slow and painful death peter where are you is it was there piano playing in the background were you in a cigar lounge are you drinking whiskey peter listen to this let me just hear that again listen to this g'day josh peter what's playing in the background curious what is the most what is, are you playing the piano? uncomfortable conversation that you tend to have Is someone have else playing the piano? And do you... Are you in a royal palace? having this uncomfortable conversation, or do you prefer that it would just die a slow... Anyway, and I want to be death? wherever Peter Lamb is, but uh, thank you for the question, Peter. The most 
common uncomfortable conversation that I have at the moment is the most boring conversation I've ever had in my life, which has to do with Australia's response to the pandemic and trying to swat away uh, Twitter bros who think they're coming to save Australia from authoritarianism. Uh, that's uncomfortable because it's just so deeply stupid and annoying. But uh, you're right that I'm bored of it. But th that's only because we happen to be living in this particular moment. If you pan out from the pandemic, then the most common uncomfortable conversation is probably around like diversity quotas. And that's probably because I work in an institution that has them where every, every single segment that we do on my show, on my radio show, has to t keep a record in a spreadsheet of the gender and uh, ethnicity uh, and like sexuality of guests to basically make sure that we hit certain targets. Um, and the conversation that I find unfruitful is the one around like, is the problem of a lack of diversity, a problem of bigotry from the people who are uh, like booking the guests or hiring the staff or is it a problem of a dearth of people of different, like a, a, a misallocation of uh, interests and talents throughout the population so that some identities and some demographics are just, you know, less suited to taking certain guest roles or taking certain parts? I went to the theatre last night, saw the opening night of a new production of Death of a Salesman in Sydney, one of my favourite plays, brilliant play. It's sort of colourblind casting, so... There's a, there's the son of the neighbor is like this very smart character. He's a good kid and he ends up becoming a lawyer who is arguing before the Supreme Court and Willie Loman, the tragic salesman figure, is sort of wishes that his kids could be as successful as this kid. And that was, that was cast with um, a black Australian actor, very good actor, I must say, uh, in a sort of colorblind casting role. And uh, like Willie Loman's boss is an Asian Australian guy. And there's a narrator character who isn't really in the play, but insists on reading out all the stage directions to the play in a mildly annoying manner. And that's a woman of color. And far be it from me to begrudge any of this. Like, it's great that we're seeing more diversity on Australian stages, but I didn't need the narrator character. A little part of everybody is kind of thinking, have they just done this so that they can get a woman of colour onto the stage somehow because it just wouldn't fit for Willie Loman's wife to be a woman of colour? Then does it really actually make all that much sense that Willie Loman's boss in the 1950s or 1960s is an Asian-American? I mean, maybe, but it doesn't really pass the smell test. And then the idea of a young person in this working-class neighbourhood in Brooklyn whose father is white, being himself black, we don't see the mother, so maybe it's assumed that she's black, but that there's no mention of this. I mean, you know, many neighborhoods in Brooklyn in the 50s and 60s were redlined, meaning that black people couldn't even live in them. Uh, even if they could live in them, an interracial marriage would have raised a lot of eyebrows. It would have been something that you would presumably address. Uh, the fact that he then went on to be arguing before the Supreme Court. I mean, how many black lawyers were arguing before the Supreme Court in the 50s and, and 60s like it just injects a lot of a lot of artistically unnecessary questions into a into a project and I'm sure that one could probably listen back on this conversation with myself in 20 years time and go oh my god I can't believe you're such a dinosaur everything's color colorblind now colorblind casting but in a way I'd sort of rather the whole thing be colorblind and just make Willie Loman black that might be an interesting choice like the the evaporation of the american dream out of the hands of 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 a of a black family could be a really interesting twist in the same way that hamilton is a fascinating twist on american history it's a metaphor it doesn't have to be literal but when you start mixing the literal with sort of you know well-meaning diversity quotas I, I can't help but feel that half the audience is just sitting there thinking about the diversity quotas and wondering why they're watching it this way and maybe that's just a hump that we need to get over in order to get to a more equal world but it doesn't seem like the most judicious way of getting there to me um so coming back to this question of like booking guests uh who are diverse if what you're doing is trying to have a conversation about how 
you know, the population of Sydney feels about a policy, for example, then I think it's absolutely imperative to have people who come from different communities. I don't really care what the colour of their skin is, but I do definitely care that they come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different religious backgrounds, from different ways of seeing the world, so that you're not always talking to people who have the same experience. Um, and that is probably going to mean that they have to have a range of different sexualities and races and backgrounds and nationalities and faiths. That's great. Where I get bored and where the conversation becomes uncomfortable needlessly is in uh, an insistence that any disparity in when you're talking about, for example, expert opinion, like, you know, there are some, when I used to have a TV show on the weekends in Australia, the the weekend breakfast show, uh, we would primarily be interviewing experts in fields. I mean, we would need experts. It wasn't like, you know, tell me what you think of this policy. It was like, here's been a scientific breakthrough. Let's find someone who really understands the genetics of this to explain it. Now, if I have to cast a perfectly equal proportion of Indigenous women in that role as I do white men, unfortunately, for many complicated historical reasons, many of which are horrendous and racist and bigoted, but not all of which are, there are fewer indigenous female brain surgeons than there are, you know, even as a proportion of their population, than there are white men. And it's it, it becomes a bit boring to me to to talk about diversity of appearance in the media as being only a question of these old-fashioned media institutions expressing their traditional white bigotry and kind of misogyny and, and sexism and patriarchy upon an innocent public that is clamoring for diversity, because frequently when you do add a lot of diversity in, if you're not keeping the standards up, if you're doing some tokenistic bullshit where you're just wheeling out a, a minority and and patting them on the head and saying, here you go, we're giving you a leg up, even though we know that you're not the right person, the perfectly right person to be talking to about this thing, I find that patronizing, I find it condescending. Uh, I'd like to talk to people from all walks of life about all kinds of things, not because they are representatives of some identity. I'd like to talk to them because they're interesting human beings. And there's this sort of false binary that either it's because the people who are doing the hiring and doing the booking are bigots or, you know, right-wingers will sometimes say, well, it's just it's a pipeline problem. I mean, there just aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough uh, good actors of colour in Australia, therefore we can't cast them. I don't buy that either. I mean, there are tons of talented people, they just have to have to be unearthed. But let's unearth them in ways that actually honour them as creators and individuals and, and don't doesn't tokenistically sort of just put them up on a on a pedestal so that we can feel good about ourselves and telegraph to all of our friends and neighbours how worthy we are. There's this kind of, you know, sanctimonious left-wing game that we're all playing and it's really hard to talk about. Like, I'm even nervous about having said what I just said about the cast of Death of a Salesman, because I can imagine it being taken out of context by people and, mis- and willfully misunderstood and misrepresented, because that's the kind of climate we live in. So that's the uncomfortable conversation that I encounter the most, at least when it's banging around in my own head. And it's the one that seems to be the, the most intractable and currently exhausting. Next question is a written question from Ryan Price in Honolulu. Aloha, Ryan. Uh, He says, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of identity as a concept and how this is perhaps the source of virtually all the world's conflict, religious, political, national, racial, etc. I'm curious if you think that perhaps the modern push to place undue import on one's identity is what's driving the particularly cantankerous environment. And if we shouldn't just push to eschew all notions of identity altogether insofar as that's possible. In short, is identity itself the bad guy? Uh... The answer to that question, Ryan, is yes. Next question is an audio question from Sasha. Hey, Uncle Josh, or is that Professor Zepps? Just had a question for you for your Ask Me Anything segment. Having been born and raised in a high-control religious cult that I escaped from in my late 30s, in my case, the Jehovah's Witnesses, just wondering what your thoughts are about having uncomfortable conversations and challenging belief structures of religions, particularly when they have doctrines or practices that can prove to be toxic or harmful to people. Do we have a right to question these things? Should we be able to push back on religions or do they get a pass in society? Uh, Just love your thoughts on that. Cheers, mate. Thanks so much for the podcast. We love every episode. Thanks, Sasha. That's uh, a great question. I do think you have to push back on religion. Yeah. 
Uh, it's very hard to do. I used to think it was fruitless. I, I used to believe... I heard someone say, you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into, which I thought was very profound. So if you're a person of faith, you inherited that faith, you never reasoned your way into it, you can't reason your way out of it, it just is. It just is inside you. And that may be true for some people, but I think you only have to look at the feedback that these movements get from people who were previously deeply conservative religiously, who have fallen out of faith. I I think some people just need a nudge, and you have to use your own judgment about who those people are and what that nudge is. I mean, it may be, certainly denigrating someone's faith is never going to work, you know, denigrating anyone, as as you know, if you're a fan of mine, I'm always about trying to find the middle ground, because I think people are easier to to sway. Well, not just because I think people are easier to sway, because I think that it's the most humane way to live your life and the most intellectually uh, honest and rigorous thing to do. But quite apart from anything, if you, if you're, even if your object was was not your own uh, heart and soul and intellect and credibility, even if your only object was to cynically try to move other people's opinions, the best way to do it would not be to try to force them to to conclude that they are believing stupid things, but to coax them into questioning aspects of their own beliefs that are illogical or inconsistent. And sometimes you can do that yourself, and sometimes it might just take a book. I mean, Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, is a wonderful a wonderful book against religion, and Letter to a Christian Nation is good specifically for Christians. Um, it's a very short book. It's, it's probably the best place to start for a Christian who might be wavering, who you think, you know, is open to considering atheism, because we need more people in the free thinking movement. We need more people who are openly and generously agnostic and atheist, not dogmatically doctrinaire about it, but who are just like, you know, what's going to happen to me after I die is definitely something that we don't know. And I mean, we are absolute, we are all certain that anybody who claims to know what happens after you die is full of shit. Like, we just don't, we don't know that. We don't know what's going to happen. Anyone who claims to is obviously lying. They haven't died, and they've never spoken to anyone who's died, so they don't know. Uh, What happens after you die is probably much like what happened before you were born. Or it might be completely different. It's unlikely to have been predicted in texts that were written thousands of years ago by people who didn't know the first thing about how the world works. Um, So I think we can safely say that. But uh, yeah, I think that has to be part of the conversation about reason and uh, and faith. Uh, another uh, written question from Jacob Vernon in Melbourne. Our recent emergence from lockdowns is nice, but the possibility of dangerous variants means we may well return. So one, in contrast with top-down restrictions, could a bottom-up informed consent risk model work to effectively manage living with COVID? with innovative tools to facilitate individuals understanding their risk in each situation and leaving it up to them to determine their precautions. And two, what are some of your favourite books and which would you recommend to others? Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, I think once COVID is endemic, and this is part of the misunderstanding about what's going on in parts of Australia at the moment, which I, I actually do think is is ridiculous overreach. The, what the Northern Territory and South Australia are doing at the moment is crazy, where, uh, well, it's not crazy. It's far too cautious. Uh, not in the sense of uh, assisting Indigenous communities to escape the sweltering heat in the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles from any healthcare where they're unable to isolate so they don't all get decimated, many of them living with comorbidities um, by uh, housing them in air-conditioned Howard Springs bungalows, but uh, which, you know, we can have a conversation about whether or not that's an infringement of human rights or or not. I think that's perfectly legitimate, especially if the community leaders themselves uh, condone it. But there are instances of people, like I spoke the the other day to a woman from Melbourne who was with her eight-month-old and her, I think it was a five-year-old child and her husband. They were flying to see family in Adelaide. There was one confirmed case of COVID on the plane and they were incarcerated for a week because they, even though they tested negative because in Adelaide, because they were, um, you know, they were a close contact. I say incarcerated. It wasn't a jail. It was a hotel room. But there were no windows. And, they were, you know, they've got kids. And they just thought they were going for a, a holiday. They were eventually forced to drive to the border under police escort. Uh, and then the police car turned around at the border. I mean, that's hundreds of miles uh, from Adelaide to the, to the Victorian border to get out of the jurisdiction. And, you know, there are cases of people in the Northern Territory who are close contacts who are being 
you know, taken against their will to Howard Springs. I think at this stage of the pandemic, even though I understand the caution about Indigenous communities and them wanting to keep case numbers low, I don't think you can justify that sort of infringement on, on individual rights, uh, just using the trade-off of, of public health as your justification. However, uh, as you say, Jacob, uh, you know, we're in this for the long haul. Once we've got vaccination rates up in each of these jurisdictions to the sorts of levels that they are in Sydney's state of New South Wales, uh, and once COVID is sort of endemic in communities, then obviously there's going to be zero justification for any of that stuff. And I think there'll be zero public uh, acceptance of it. So, yeah, could you have, uh, you know, some kind of AI system measuring risk all the time and you could make your own choices about it? I like that. I mean, the more empowered individuals can be, uh, the better. Uh, what are some of my favorite books and what would I recommend most to others? When I was young, so when I was a kid, I devoured all of Roald Dahl's books. If you're American, you don't know Roald Dahl, one of the greatest uh, children's writers of all time, a British uh, writer. He wrote uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, a great many other books. Fantastic for your kids. Uh, when I was in my teens, I devoured pretty much every Stephen King novel. <laughs> I think King is one of the underrated uh, writers. Like, you know, everyone knows him, everyone loves him, but they think of him as being sort of just, you know, the kind of thing you buy at an airport bookstore to read on the on the plane that has no literary merit. I think he does have literary merit. He's an amazing writer, and he probably gave me much of my appreciation for storytelling. Um, my favorite books, the favorite books of like the past... Well, the past of the past 10 years, I'll pick two. One is uh, Jonathan Franz and The Corrections. Uh, which is brilliant. All of Franzen's books are great. Uh, and the other is David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, uh, especially if you haven't seen the film, which is a bit of a turkey uh, by the Wachowski brothers or sisters, as they now may be. Cloud Atlas is just such a beautiful book, and, and The Corrections is just such a perfect uh, sort of portrait of modern American malaise. And But, in ter- but uh, coming back to the question about rationality and reason and the impact that that science writers had in my teens, I would point out two books, well, maybe three. Cosmos by Carl Sagan is one of the greatest books ever written. It's a history of all of scientific knowledge, which is really just a history of knowledge, but it's not long and it's not boring and it's not data, full of data. It's a gripping tale of people who thought enormous thoughts and had incredible breakthroughs from Galileo all the way up to the present day. Cosmos is absolutely wonderful, the book by Carl Sagan. He wrote another amazing book, which is a much easier read and a much more sort of prescient book for someone to have been writing in, I guess it was the 70s, uh, called uh, A Demon Haunted World. And I think the subtitle is Science as a Candle in the Dark. And it is unbelievable. I've reread some passages that went viral on social media from that book about the present day. And he pretty much predicts the rise of social media and a Trump-like figure and misinformation. He's like, I, I worry about a world in which people are so wedded to the, what they want to be true and so unmoored from from the facts that they're going to be more susceptible to someone who proudly peddles bullshit because they've lost faith in a shared agreement about trusting the institutions of truth. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing book. And a similarly amazing book that changed my life was, uh, one of Richard Dawkins's books, an unusual book, uh, for him. Most of his books are about science. This is his most poetic book. It's called Unweaving the Rainbow, which is a reference to when, uh, the first person split light into, uh, using a prism, using a glass prism into all the colors of the rainbow in order to understand what a rainbow was and then finally understood that white light isn't just isn't just this ambient thing that we're living amongst it's this incredible radiant thing that's full of all these different colors and if you put it through a prism at just this thing then a splay of rainbow colors go exploding from this prism just because of the different wavelengths and explaining the wavelengths of light this you know scientist i can't remember his name whoever discovered this an incredible breakthrough and it was some person of faith, some religious bishop or something who said, you know, the scientists will stoop to all new lows, going so low as to unweave the rainbow. As if as if there was something sort of profane or anti-majestic about an act of knowledge, about an act of understanding what a rainbow is, as if there was something something useful or beautiful or to be cherished about being ignorant of what a rainbow is. And this is Richard Dawkins' attempt to 
say, no, 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 no. The world is so much more incredible if you do understand what's going on. That's the whole point of knowledge. That's the whole point of science. There's nothing admirable, admirable about going, uh, well, we don't know, and therefore, you know, you shouldn't try to know. It's also weird that that kind of religious attitude is so often coupled to a claim that they do know the most important and outrageous things that nobody could know. Like I was saying a moment ago, like what happens to you after you die? I'm sorry, you don't want to know what a, what causes a rainbow, but you say you do know what the purpose of the universe is and how old it is exactly and that someone walked on water 2,000 years ago with no evidence and what happens after I die. I mean, that is rich. Who's the arrogant one? The scientist who's unweaving the rainbow? So that's a great book. Uh, those would be my recommendations. Uh, time for a quick fire round. Uh, just a few questions before we wrap. Uh, question one, what's your favorite podcast? I would say the Slate Political Gab Fest. Question two, what's your number one wet dream guest? I didn't read wet, I didn't read guest there. I said, what's your number one wet dream? I won't answer that. Guest for uncomfortable conversations. Um, if I believed that I could ask them anything and they would be honest about it and that they wouldn't be glib the whole time, then I think Dave Letterman would be my number one guest. And maybe like Goebbels. I would have said Hitler, but Hitler's a bit predictable. Like someone who really believed, because Goebbels was a good propagandist. Like I'd, re I'd really like to get inside his head and, and understand why he thought what he was doing was right. Because like, if he can think that gassing six million Jews is right. Like, what does that tell us about how mis mistaken we can be about our own beliefs? I think that would be interesting. However, I think Goebbels would be evasive and Dave Letterman would be glib. <laughs> so in that context, I'll go back to Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman, who I think would be uh, just wonderful guests. Uh, question three, lab leak or wet market? I don't know. Nobody does. Well, not nobody. Someone probably does, but uh, nobody who is telling you that they know does. Uh, question four, what's the best person, who's the best person to follow on Twitter and why? No one. The best thing to do would be to delete Twitter. Question five, what's your favorite interview that you've ever done and why? Russell Brand on HuffPost Live. You can find it online, I think. It was amazing. I mean, when you watch it, you won't need an explanation why. Uh, question uh, six, uh, favorite item on the Christmas lunch spread uh, and most overrated item on the Christmas lunch spread? Um, Sydney Rock Oysters are one of the most delicious, delectable, romantic, succulent things in the universe. Uh, so I would put that on my Christmas lunch spread, just a fresh uh, oyster, freshly shucked, just a little squeeze of lemon, nothing else on it. Most overrated item on the Christmas lunch spread. Well, uh, do they do this in America at Christmas or is it only Thanksgiving where they like mash up sweet potato, add like cinnamon and sugar to it, and then pile marshmallow whip on top and bake it? It is fucking disgusting. It's just sugar and goo uh, no, it's, that's torture to the poor sweet potato. Come on, just pop a sweet potato in the microwave, stab it a few times, uh, put some butter or sour cream on it and some salt and pepper. Beautiful. Uh, question seven, tips on the best way to drop <laughs> I've interviewed Richard Dawkins into a conversation with a stranger. Uh, that's rich since I've just talked about Richard Dawkins so much. I think the best way to drop I've interviewed Richard Dawkins into a conversation with a stranger is not to mention it, but to be wearing a baseball cap that says I've interviewed Richard Dawkins on it in neon flashing while you're talking to them. Uh, and last question, how do the culture wars end? Answer A, a cult, an actual war. B, technologically induced universal empathy. C, climate change ends them for us. D, none of the above, then how? Yeah, I don't think the culture wars do end, uh, but they change. I think they will go away because they'll morph into some other disagreement. They will modify themselves because we will lose interest in the particular fads and to the extent that wokeness fosters greater compassion and diversity for minority identities, that will get absorbed by the rest of the culture as long as it doesn't spark a backlash because it's gone too far, which it probably will. So I believe in a sort of Hegelian dialectic that swings back and forth between extremes and finds a center. My concern is that social media is making the swings so much wider and so much stronger and so much more extreme and so much more partisan that it'll just swing, swing, swing and the boat will capsize. I don't know what that looks like. I don't think it looks like actual, an actual war war, but it could lead to the disintegration of, of civil society, especially in the United States. I, I could imagine an anarchic uh, country in which there's just a lot of crime that gets responded to with a lot of 
police heavy-handedness and and brutality and sort of a quasi-authoritarian, quasi-democratic, almost like sort of, I don't know, Russia-style state. I can imagine that, but um, I think in general liberalism and Western democracy will prevail. They've done, they've had a pretty good run. I think people are, are, to the extent that we can make people generally wealthy and generally well, and governments generally responsive to their needs, the way that they are, I think, broadly in Western Europe and Australia and Canada, I think we will be okay. Thank you so much for listening to this. Thank you for being a listener to the podcast. When I look at the episode list of 2021, I can't believe it. We did 42 episodes with some of the, some amazing people. Eddie Izzard, John Hewson, the former opposition leader of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, former prime minister, Megan Daum, Andrew Denton, our greatest comedian and broadcaster, arguably, Tim Minchin, Jesse Single, uh, Todd Sampson, Tim Flannery, Norm MacDonald, Ian Hersey Ali, Tim Urban, as I mentioned. Anyway, it's been an absolute joy. Have a wonderful and safe Christmas. We'll be back in the second or third week of January. I don't have a calendar right in front of me, but uh, we'll be back with more Uncomfortable Conversations then. Have a happy new year. I love you. Bye. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.